This week, the gang's going to discuss some of the highlights of the Verizon 2019 Payment Security Report, which was released last week, November 13th, and overall how reporting of PCI compliance continues to decrease on a global basis. Why is this happening? What's missing? What needs to change? Has PCI become obsolete, or are there other reasons for this ongoing trend? In our second segment, we'll discuss the security and compliance news of the week, including our readiness for Security 4.0, getting prepared for New York's expanded data security requirements, compliance for cannabis banking, and where the CCPA and GDPR overlap and diverge. So join us as we tear down silos and build bridges on Security and Compliance Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. And now, it's the show that bridges the requirements of regulations, compliance, and privacy with those of security. Your trusted source for complying with various mandates, building effective programs, and current compliance news. It's time for Security and Compliance Weekly. Today's organizations face an evolving set of security threats and continually changing compliance requirements. As your business grows, privacy concerns only multiply and add to a dynamic set of priorities. Today's organizations need to integrate risk, security, and privacy into a cohesive program. Online Business Systems team of seasoned security practitioners work closely with you to assess your security posture, policies, procedures, and technologies providing tailored solutions that are specifically aligned to your business's risk profile and ultimately ensure the protection of your brand. To learn more about online business systems, go to securityweekly.com forward slash online. Welcome to episode seven of Security and Compliance Weekly, recorded on November 19th, 2019. I am your host, Mr. Jeff Mann, coming to you remotely from Maryland. And online, we have uh, my co hosts, Scott Lyons and Josh Marpet. Marpet, I'm sorry. And uh, in studio today, holding down the fort all on his own is our CEO, Mr. Matt Alderman. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hey, how jo- you doing, Jeff? Josh and Scott look like they're on the same bowling team. That's cool. Yep. They got matching shirts. Cool. Hey, today we're going to discuss uh, uh, PCI because, A, I love to talk about PCI, and, and two, because Verizon just just published its annual payment security report. Before we jump into that, though, I want to give one quick announcement. Uh, Register today for one of our upcoming webcasts on securityweekly.com. First one is Great Horn. Second one is Core Security. Or if you're feeling saucy, sign up for both of them. Go to securityweekly.com, click on the webcast dropdown, and then select registration. And if you've missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find them on, in our on-demand library by selecting on-demand from the webcast dropdown. And just as a reminder, if you attend any of our webcasts, you get one CPE credit per webcast. All right. Let's talk PCI. Uh, last week, Verizon published its annual payment security report, which I believe they used to call just their PCI breach report or something to that. So, you know, clever marketing. They've changed the name. Uh, and the biggest finding that's that's leading the headlines for a lot of the security uh, uh, and compliance news, and this is why I thought we should talk about it, is that for the second consecutive year in a row, overall PCI compliance is is decreasing. 
So that begs the question, why? And that's kind of what I want to talk about for our for our discussion this week is why do we think PCI compliance overall is decreasing? What are the causes, factors, and what do we do about it? Uh, anybody have any initial thoughts? Want to jump in? I'm going to argue slightly. And what I argue, I mean uh, to argue the, not the conclusions, but the means that the data was collected. They state, I think it was 55 organizations are all that they actually used to get this data. 55 organizations out of, uh, Jeff, how many organizations need to be or are supposed to be PCI compliant? Uh, uh, what's I your think guess? At, at last tally, the number was 60. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it, depending on the level, it, it's it's millions, at least in North America. It, it's five, six, seven, ten million. They don't really know if you count okay. all the little guys. Right. So what we're saying is out of potentially millions, let's call it a million just for nice round numbers, they, they, okay. they, they looked at 55 organizations. I'm going to say that I think that they might need to go broader. And now I'm not saying that that's a statistical norm. Uh, it surprised me when I discovered that to do a representative sample, you don't need to have a huge amount of organizations or people, depending on what type of study you're doing. But still, I've got to think that 55 is not enough. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. And and I guess as a disclaimer, just in general, uh, unless they've changed things, uh, the Verizon report is based on Verizon customers. So even, you know, even, you know, beyond what you're saying, a relatively small sample set, it's also a possibly skewed sample set just by virtue of the fact that it's <laughs> that it's companies that are foolish or clever enough to, to sign up for Verizon, you know, PCI assessment services. Yeah, what I'm hoping... What I hope you're not implying is that if you're with Verizon, your compliance is going down <laughs> over the last two years. I don't know. Do we ever anticipate Verizon being a customer or a sponsor of this show? <laughs> Probably no, not, but, look, but I mean, still. But still I don't, well, I don't know that you can draw that that conclusion, <laughs> but but one could infer it. <laughs> well, so, so let's, But let's, let's yeah. use that conclusion for just a second. You've got uh, 55 organizations that we're not sure about the numbers, if that's an appropriate representative sample, mm -hmm. uh, and they're all Verizon customers. Uh, so what we're saying is out of a small sample of Verizon customers, they're seeing PCI compliance, uh, effective PCI compliance, drop fairly dramatically. Uh, I, I would characterize that drop as fairly dramatic. I, I think it was uh, 55 to 36 percent or something like that. Yeah, something um, along those lines. So well, does, uh, does it uh, so reflect again, on Verizon? Does it reflect on PCI? What, what does that reflect none of upon? The above. None of the above. None of the above. Well, no, I think. You, well, go ahead, go, Jeff. Go ahead. Uh, no, Scott. go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead. Well, I, I still want to. Uh, I want to frame this because because uh, there's a lot of disclaimers that you can put in for sample size, sample set. But I think in general, um, you know, based on conversations, based on the fact that I work for a, a, a QSA company, so we have PCI customers. Uh, I know the difficulty of uh, maintaining PCI compliance on an ongoing manner, you know, year in and year out. So, you know, if we can suspend disbelief or accept the statistics for what they are for a minute, uh, you know, let's try to focus on what we think might be you know, the problems, the causes, what's missing, what's, you know, what, what should be added, what should be taken away uh, with the assumption that, yeah, we are perhaps working with skewed data that, that okay. might tell a different story. Okay. Take it at face value in other words. And let's see if we take it yeah. at face value, 
what do we gain from this this data this this discussion and i think the well, answer uh, is that well there, there's a bigger there's a bigger play here right and that is verizon is trying to push their 954 program right and the 954 the the 954 program is nine factors of control effectiveness with five constraints of organizational proficiency plus four lines of assurance you know what they're doing is they're taking a subset of customers that are PCI required saying here's what we're seeing in those trends oh and by the way if you use our 954 program you're going to be better off than everybody else i mean does that make sense well i don't think that the 954 is a branded trademarked, uh, 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 it might be trademarked, sorry, but I don't think it's a branded Verizon program. In other words, I think anybody could use the 954 program. I was reading it and going, it's really not bad. It's, it's, it's actually got some, ver- I, I like the way they've characterized things so that it, it explains uh, what you have to do and what you have to have and what you have to be. It reminds me of multi-factor authentication, to be honest with you, in that it's trying to bring about not just what you have to do, the controls and such, or the process and procedure, but you also have to have a sort of organizational, uh, what they call it, competence and capability. And if you don't have these sort of factors in your organization, you're in trouble. And I get okay, that. Okay, so so I agree with both of you guys. Let let me let me put forth a question and and try to make it succinct so that we can respond to it. And I think what we're discussing already relates to it. Um, if we take uh, at face value that there's an, a, a decrease in overall PCI compliance that's being reported on an ongoing basis. Um, is it because PCI is is broken in some way? Is there something yes. missing from PCI? Yes, and yes. or is it because it's not being followed or implemented either because it's too daunting, it's too difficult, it's obsolete, it's dated, whatever the reason. What are the root causes of why compliance is going down? Business. Business. It's just that simple. Look, a business is going to do things that they need to or have to. Why? Mm. Because it costs them money. It costs them money not to do it. It is effort-filled. That's a cost, of course. Uh, or mm. because nobody cares, they won't do it. Uh, if, if, PCI is a way to assure security, right? Uh, just broadly, bear with me for a second. If okay. nobody cares about PCI because everybody's getting breached, and nobody cares about PCI because the fines aren't daunting enough if you're not, or uh, why should I bother? Literally that simple. What do I care? Yeah, well, the other, the other, the other question is: Do I actually fall under PCI regs? You know, in the in our travels, Josh and I have met a number of companies that don't even know that they fall under PCI. Right? That God. the way that they're controlling credit card data is not appropriate. You know, and we've had to train them on this. Right? So, how does how does one actually tell whether or not they're under PCI? Is really where you start with this. You know, well, and that, if you're already that's under, a that's a great first question, and and I th- I think it 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 has a, a very simple answer. Uh, you know, most companies in the world are in business to make money in some way, shape, or form. They're selling something, either goods or services or whatever. And in in terms of a form of payment for goods and services, if they accept credit or debit cards. They are subject to PCI. It's really that simple. 
not according to the uh, points of sale terminal companies that go, no, 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 you don't have to worry about any of it. We handle all of it. You don't, you are you're not under PCI, correct. we are. So how many companies, bodegas, corner stores, whatever, just they're like, oh, I don't have to deal with any of this. I'm not PCI. It's all these guys. We've dealt with billion-dollar companies that are e-commerce companies. They're like, oh, no, no, we don't do PCI. We send all of our stuff through a payment gateway, and it's gone. We don't deal with any of it. We don't have a cardholder data environment. It's from the terminal directly through. We just give them internet, basically, and it's gone, and they handle all of it. And it's like, Which well, is- you take credit cards over the phone, or you take credit cards via a web form or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, but those don't count. Well, that, you're raising a, a very interesting uh, point in terms of the PCI ecosystem, as it were. Uh, there's a lot of vendors out there selling solutions that in one way, shape, or form are trying to, uh, and I, I quote a lot of the marketing slogans I've seen over the years, uh, minimize your PCI, decrease your PCI burden, make it go away. Um, and, and I will say, just because a vendor says, you don't have to worry about PCI doesn't necessarily mean you don't have to worry about PCI. The, the, the way the rules are written, if you accept payment with credit or debit cards, you're subject to PCI. That as a first step is, is, is a true statement. Now, are there lots of companies, smaller merchants, and even some larger merchants that try to minimize their responsibility for PCI by outsourcing to, uh, payment processors, payment gateways, point of sale providers that, you know, quote unquote, do it all for them. Yes, absolutely. I think you know, that's happens to be part of the problem is the miscommunication and misunderstanding of who's responsible for what, you know, down on page 13, right? There's this really great rubric of, uh, capacity, capability, competence, com- uh, commitment, and communication versus the factors of the control environment, control design, control risk, control robustness, right? Uh, and you can read it. W- but where I'm headed with this is that they're pointing out the single biggest factor, at least I believe, that we're discussing right now, uh, which is competence over control risk, right? Does a company have enough competence to be able to say, yes, we are within PCI. No, we are not within PCI. If we are within PCI, what does that look like, right? What is the ecosystem? Is it a shared security model? Is it a, is it a shared responsibility model versus does the the CDE or the card, the card data environment reside in the bounds of our enterprise, right? And a lot of companies really struggle with where does the risk reside? Yeah, and so so you two have said it, Josh and Scott. It, this is a risk management decision, right? And I think the one thing that's missing in PCI, not I don't think PCI per se is broken, but I think what's missing in PCI is a way to gauge risk associated with PCI for an organization and how much a PCI applies to them. To your point, Jeff, right? If you take credit card data, you're susceptible, but the level varies, right? And I think there is um, misinformation or misguidance on what what am I actually bound to in PCI based on my level and how I process cards and, and so on and so forth. So to me, part of the challenge here is there's no risk management framework that effectively sits on top of this for organizations to really understand, okay, I'm bound to PCI, but I'm only bound to 
these few things or the whole thing. We, we know that if you're a merchant or you're a processor, you're, you're going to get the full DSS pretty much in your lap, right? But if mm -hmm. you're a small little mom and pop merchant, what are you required to do? How can you mitigate risk through the different relationships that you have, but understand what that risk looks like? And, and I think that's what's missing in PCI. Well, and I, I and I agree with you, and, and I think that's acknowledged at least in terms of understanding that that's a problem. I don't know that uh, anybody's come up with a good way, whether it's the PCI Council or the car brands, have come up with a good answer for how do we how do we address this problem. But I, I think it's twofold, and I'm sort of restating it with what you're saying and, and using different, slightly different terminology that's more PCI speak, if you will. Uh, the first is an issue of what's uh, come to be known as segmentation, which largely has to do with scope. And, and it sort of addresses what, what Josh and Scott were saying earlier. There's companies that say, we don't do anything with PCI. We throw it all over to a third party, thus reducing the scope and thus reducing you know, what they have to do. The The cardholder data environment is essentially outside of their boundary, outside of their control. All they're doing is is passing on the, the payment data uh, using, you know, presumably some sort of encrypted channel from a, from a secure and encrypted point of sale system so that it passes through the merchant all the way over to the back-end payment process or payment provider. Um on paper, though, uh, mer there, there's two entities. There's merchants and there's service providers. We're talking mostly about merchants, large or small. If they're accepting credit cards, payment cards, they're, they're responsible for doing PCI. Here's where the, the misunderstanding and misapplication of PCI begins. Um, on paper, any merchant, whether they're taking one card a year or whether they're taking 100 million cards a year, are responsible, by definition, for following the full uh, PCI data security standard. That, that is what's reflected in what's called a report on compliance. So it's, it's 12 categories, roughly 400-some-odd controls. And every card brand, Visa, MasterCard, Amex, uh, Discover and JCB says uh, if you're a merchant doing business with one of our cards, you need to be PCI compliant, but we will look at you based on the volume, the, the volume of transactions. And this is where we come up with level one, two, three, and four merchants. Now, roughly all the card brands uh, define the levels more or less the same size with, with some variation, but more or less there's four levels of merchants and the larger merchants, the level ones and twos are largely the ones that have to have a QSA, a third party come in and, and put them through the paces of, are you following all the DSS rules? Um, if you're a smaller merchant, which is fewer transactions or your e-commerce only, you get to do what's called a self-assessment questionnaire that is driven by uh, the card brands. Now, wh where it gets complicated is if you're smaller and you're doing the self-assessment questionnaires, uh, you're sort of moving into a different category. There's currently nine different versions of the self-assessment questionnaire and which one you 
use to to validate your compliance depends very much on your method of accepting payments. So the the nine different flavors of uh, SAQ are are at a high level based on how you accept payments. To a lesser degree, it sort of correlates to the size of merchant, but it's very much tailored to well, you're only a small merchant and you've got that thing on the mo- on the wall used to be connected like by DSL where you'd put the card in and and magic happens and you get the authorization back. Much more common these days are it's a it's a web-based uh, you know browser-based point of sale system that's either being served over the internet, you know, it, it's it's basically a web application or it's it's it could even be on a handheld device, on a mobile device, you know, there's lots of variations, but essentially um the, the self-assessment questionnaires say if you're only do, taking payments a certain way and you're not doing all these other things, then, and this is the, the beauty of the self-assessment questionnaire, we're only going to ask you the questions, you know, which requirements are, are you following that obviously directly apply to this method or this form of, of payment acceptance. And, and this is where a, a lot of misunderstanding takes place because most people assume then that they're only responsible for only doing whatever the subset is in the SAQ, that that's all that they have to look at. As a practical matter, yes, that's true. But technically, they're responsible for following all of the rules. They're just being validated or they're self-validating on the ones that are most applicable based on a predetermined set of uh, criteria that's based on payment acceptance method. They only I'll need take to a breath. They only need to comply yeah. with the subset. Right. Yeah, but there's but there's an inherent problem with the SAQ, right? So Jeff, you're talking about the just benefits. a few. <laughs> no, there's there's an inherent problem with it as well, right? And the inherent problem yep. is the way that the questions are laid out, right? So uh, uh, you may have multiple questions with a yes or no answer. Right. And if you answer no for one of the questions, all of the questions are therefore negated. You know, uh, the, the problem is, is that the PCI council sat back and said, well, we need a way for orgs to be able to measure themselves. Right. Let's give them as little questions or as many questions as possible in the littlest format. Right. So that organizations aren't taking years to be able to to fill this out you know when you go through and granularly i know that's a that's that's a tough word for me uh when you go through and really break out break apart the saqd you know you're inflating it from anywhere from 800 to 1200 questions to know exactly pinpoint where you stand within the dss right a lot of companies don't have the time money or resources to be able to do that right so when you're saying well, DSS this, DSS that, you know, also understand that there are inherent issues that go along with being able to successfully complete that exercise. So I want to shift. Well, and that's proven. Hold on, hold on, Matt. I'll let's continue. I mean, that's proven by this report, is it not? That, you know, it's, it's, it's costly, it's expensive, it's challenging, it's complex, whether you're following SAQD, which essentially is just the full DSS, but in questionnaire form, or whether you're doing the full DSS. It's really hard to do everything and do it right and do it well and do it consistently. Go ahead, Matt. So I, I want to shift a second to what's the purpose of PCI DSS? So could uh, protect credit card data, right? So the question no. is, well, <laughs> I, 
ultimately. That's what it's supposed to be for, right? <laughs> so but that's not why it came about, but go well, ahead. Uh, maybe not, but l- let's look at the results. What it's being used for now. Right. It is, is credit card fraud going down or going up? Um, is the concepts of PCI working in some form or fashion to protect against credit card fraud? Now, as a consumer, I don't care. I don't because I never right. see it, right? right? The banks bear the burden, right? And so the banks and the credit brands might care about it a lot more than the consumer does. But I, I was going out, I was pulling some, trying to pull some reports. It looks like credit card fraud is going down, which means aspects of protecting credit card data is actually working and I, I think reducing some level of credit card fraud. So that's good as an industry. And, and so if that's happening, um, you know, what's the, is, you can't get it to zero, my guess, right? It's, uh, in this report, it went from 8.1 billion in 2017 down to 6.4 billion in 2018. So what we're seeing is credit card fraud's going down. Attackers are shifting away from credit card, uh, to other account type of takeover and, and, uh, abuse, um, which we've seen in, in lots of different breach reports, which is great. Right. So something's happening somehow. And so I don't look at this from a compliance perspective as much as is the regulation and what it I thought was supposed to do. Is it working? And there appears to be the answer. Yeah, it is working. Um, maybe it's not about compliance. Maybe it, the, the actual security components of what we've done to protect the credit card is actually working under PCI, regardless of what the, the compliance rate is. Yeah, you raised some interesting points, and and that, that probably is a whole topic or two for another, you know, another couple of episodes. But I, I think uh, I think it's a fair question to ask whether PCI is effective, uh, or whether you know PCI has forced like point of sale providers to start doing things that like using encryption uh, of the data to. Um, make it harder for the attackers and the bad guys to steal the data the way that they were doing it in the past. Um, you know, very quickly, um, you know, PCI came about initially, uh, yes, to protect credit card data, but was also designed to provide, and this is at its inception, safe harbor for companies, for merchants that were doing the basics of security so that when they did get breached, they wouldn't get fined. If they could demonstrate that they were sort of doing, you know, best practice, you know, security hygiene 101, whatever you want to call it, the original intent of PCI was to uh, give them safe harbor from getting fined. The flip side of that was uh, it was a, a way for the card brands to sort of share the, the love of replacement costs with with their acquiring banks and with the merchants that were constantly losing the card data in the first place. And 15 years ago, card data was everywhere mm-hmm. in, in networks, and it wasn't encrypted. Um, you know, I mentioned segmentation earlier. The, you know, the, the game has become, well, if we reduce everything down to just some small, finite set of systems, and we call that car- the cardholder data environment, we don't have to do all this complicated PCI stuff everywhere else. We just isolate it. But enabled to, to 
to, to, to be able to do that, you have to effectively say, we're not doing anything with credit cards anywhere else in our network. So the, you, you know, while the, the, the motive is let's only do security here instead of everywhere, the, the motive might be wrong, but the upshot was a lot of companies have cleaned up their act and they found out that 98% of the people that were regularly accessing transaction data, which had credit card data, don't need to see it, don't need to see the credit card. So there's been a lot of elimination of credit card data, you know, on the back end in the first place, just as an example. So there's been, the, I, I I agree with you that I think that PCI has driven change, not necessarily the intended change. Sometimes I think it's incidental, but overall I think it's it's been for the good in terms of what PCI has accomplished. Um, the the amount of uh, breaches or fraud going down I think is emblematic of the fact that the large larger merchants that you know in years past we've we've famously heard about being breached and tens of millions of of credit cards being stolen you know that has largely been not eliminated but reduced so that more more often now the fraud is happening onesie twosie but ironically it's happening at the small merchants that nobody cares about or nobody thinks that they have the the experience or the or or the or the you know the the budget to, to actually do the things that they need to do so it it, it Yes, there's been benefit, but we're not completely there yet. Yeah, it, it, what I'm in what you just described makes sense. In that the risk was on the merchants, the risk mm. was on the payment processors. That's where the bulk of the breaches were happening, and the fraud and and those sorts of things. They've gotten their act together because they're under this regulatory regime. Great, but for the mm. lay merchant. I don't know that their transactions really make that big of a difference at the end of the day. Again, it goes back to this risk conversation to say, is it even worth going after level four merchants? Because th they're going to make a risk-based decision and say, look, find me, go ahead, because it's cheaper than me going out and trying to implement all this stuff. In, in that circumvents, I think the intent of PCI DSS was to create a more secure uh, ecosystem across the board, but where it's really made a dent uh, with the the merchants and the payment processors has made an impact, at least from a fraud perspective, which if I'm a bank uh, and I'm bearing the cost of that because the consumer doesn't, that's a good thing. Maybe that's where it just needs to be and, and not much else. Well, the best analogy I can think of, and we'll, we'll wrap with this thought for this segment, is uh, you know, if you're living in a neighborhood, whether it's single family homes or townhomes or condos, and everybody on the block has a, a home security system, you know, most professional burglars know how to defeat, de know how to defeat the, the, the typical home security system, or there's, you know, there's ways around it, but there's that level of assurance that, oh, we're protected now. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't. I, I guess to me, PCI compliance for the large or the small, uh, yes, I agree with you that it, for the, for the, a lot of the smaller merchants, it's probably not worth it. It's worth them going after these providers that take it all away from them or as much as possible. Uh, m m my, my parting thought is it, that that's a great argument until it happens to you. 
and then the the pain is still there but that's that's sort of the way the world has been at least in the in the private sector for at least the 20 some odd years that I've been out here most of the companies that I've encountered uh are really hoping beyond hope that they that they don't get breached uh and they don't want to go through the pain of that nobody does but they're but they're sort of treating it like winning the lottery you know oh it could happen to anybody you know it, it's the risk of stepping out your front door and being hit by a meteor i mean it's there's a certain amount of risk that doesn't go away but there's a comfort level that i think we're doing okay um we could talk forever on this topic it seems and that's one of the reasons why we have this show but uh let's take a quick break and we'll come back and talk uh, about the news of the week security and compliance news welcome back to security and compliance weekly episode number seven i'm your host mr jeff mann i am joined with my able co-host scott lyons josh marpet and matt alderman this is the segment where we talk about security and compliance news, but first, a couple of announcements. First off, we're currently running our annual listener feedback survey, and we really, really, really want to hear from you guys uh, about this show, about all of our shows. So go to securityweekly.com, find the survey tab, click on it, and then select 2019 listener survey. We're really looking forward to seeing your responses. Also, it's that time of year. Mark your calendars for our Security Weekly Holiday Extravaganza. This year on December 19th, Security Weekly is going to be live streaming five one-hour roundtable panel discussions with some of the most knowledgeable professionals in the industry. And to round out the evening, Ed Scotus will be joining us for his annual uh, announcement about the CounterHack Holiday Hack challenge that's a lot of alliteration right there you can view the live stream on our youtube channel or by visiting securityweekly.com slash live we hope to see you there and we're really looking forward to that show all right news of the week obviously one of the news items was the release of the verizon report i don't think we need to belabor that any um Josh, since you put up some reports, I'll let you start. What what story would you like to lead with in a discussion? Uh, I think the Virginia uh, quantizing of risk sounded really, really cool. So uh, I wanted to talk about that. Uh, Virginia building a new model for quantifying security risk. Uh, State Scoop that, had the article. That did sound interesting. So, so summar- summarize it for us, please. So basically they say that it's an immature model, but they're able to take uh, per record and determine a dollar figure for the loss of records, the, uh, effectively a breach. Now, uh, the Ponemon Institute's been doing that for years to a certain extent. Uh, a typical breach loses this many records, costs this much money, you do some simple division, you've got a per record cost, right? Uh, they right. say that they've got a much better system, uh, not anecdotal, not estimation, but an absolute uh, quantification of risk. Uh, if you do this or don't do this, these are the kinds of things that you're putting yourself at risk for, and the increased risk could cost you this much money. So, or, or, or decreased risk, if you do more stuff, will we'll save you this much money. Uh, so you can actually determine whether adding a dollar amount is uh, appropriate to the dollar amount of the asset or whether you're overspending to decrease risk. That's a valid thing, if, if it works. Right. Now, they, they do state here that it's still an immature model. 
and it's linking back to the 20 uh, CIS controls. So this is not super broad, but what they're trying to do is take those dollar values, uh, look at the, the CIS top 20 control list and say, look, if you make an investment here, which would cost you X, you could say potentially Y over here, data breaches kind of thing. This is kind of what they're doing. It'll be interesting to see what kind of results they get out of the model. I'm not sure it's broad enough to really get to the crux of wh what security control should I should I not be doing. Because 20, we all know 20 is like kind of the, the basic hygiene kind of stuff. You look at PCI or any of the other requirements, there's hundreds of controls in there, right? So to really make this an effective risk management framework, I think you have to look at some of those uh, controls beyond the top 20 and, and really help organizations, again, figure out this whole risk equation to say, I'm going to make an investment over in these things. And, and I'm hoping that I, I see the return on that investment over here with, with uh, fewer breaches of this data. Um, if they could do it on a broader scale, I think it would be really cool. I'm just not quite sure it's there yet. Well, they're so also have, using uh, the FAIR model, and the FAIR model is uh, very, very well-founded. And as a matter of fact, I know somebody who was just honored by the uh, the institute. I can't remember the name of the institute that administers the FAIR model. So I'm going to be inviting uh, a good friend of mine, Ian Amit. I think you know him, Jeff, right? Um, onto the show, if you don't mind, as a guest to talk about that, because I think that's going to be fascinating. So Jack Jones wrote the initial FAIR uh, model when he was at Nationwide years ago. I've known Jack for yeah. years, so we're both Ohio guys. Uh, we actually had Jack on ESW earlier this year. He works for a company called Risk Lens that implements the FAIR model into software. Uh, Jack is the, the for, one of the foremost experts on the model. My only concern with FAIR, and I do believe it's a good model, the challenge I have with FAIR is uh, the number of things you have to collect to run the model and then the frequency at which those things need to be updated. I know they've made some improvements to that over the years. But that's one of those things is, is, is the environment changes, which it changes all the time. How does that model effectively see that in a more real-time way instead of kind of a annual assessment of yourself, right? And so I think these types of models are good if you can find ways to keep them frequently updated to understand real-time risk changes in your environment. So I've got three thoughts on this. First is... I really wonder if if you do some sort of measurement, and let's assume this Virginia model is valid, and you come up with a dollar figure, whatever it is, X. Let's say it's ten dollars per record, and and I would assume that you're going to do some multiplication based on the number of records that you have. Let's say it's a million, and so you have you know the potential loss or the potential fine or potential cost of ten million dollars. Uh, my concern is how do you take that number and translate that into what's an appropriate amount of money to spend on security, number one, yet alone, where do you divvy it up? I, I think that's what most companies look for, but I, I don't see it uh, – I, I don't see how it translates from the sort of theoretical you know, whiteboard approach to practical, what are we going to spend? That's, that's my first thought. My second thought is related to it. Whenever I hear risk management and risk-based approaches, I can't help but thinking, because I have too many customers that use that terminology, that it simply means we're not going to spend money on security here or there because we, we're, we're going to roll the dice and take our chances. 
And and I guess my third thought is based on those first two thoughts, you know, w- what is the appropriate amount of sort of uh, rolling the dice that you do uh, in hopes that something bad doesn't happen? You know, it, it all boils down to dollars and cents. And there's, I like it that there's a uh, somebody making an attempt to put a dollar value on some of these things. We know how much stuff it costs if we're going to implement it. We'd like to know how much it's going to cost if we lose something or if we get something stolen. But I guess my 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 hunch is that the dollars never never are going to add up and make sense at some level. You're probably right, but there's always a cost of doing nothing as well. And you can measure the cost of doing nothing and the risks of doing nothing against the risks of doing something. And if you have a dollar value, the one thing that they're going to ask, and you alluded to this, Jeff, is what's the risk we're going to get hacked this year? What's the risk we're going to get a breach or going to have a breach this year? And that's a question you can never answer. That's the problem. Well, and and if it's a zero sum game, uh, if if what it costs, if, if the breach costs are the same regardless of what you do or don't do, and and we were starting to talk about this in terms of cyber insurance, and we talked a little bit on the break, you know, when does it make more sense to just do nothing and buy a good insurance policy? But we're not going to talk about that now because we're going to save that for its own episode. Yeah, but there's 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 a bigger there's there's a bigger thing going on here, right? Um, this is, as far as I can tell, and I'm totally, I could totally be wrong here. This is the first time that we're seeing states actually pay attention to the quantification of risk. Oh, good point. Now, I'm sure that there are other states that have done this. I can't find it in Google. Please, by all means, you know, leave a leave a comment in the description if you find other states that are doing this. There are two more in this article. Um, I got to find them now, but it, I think it was Texas and somebody else, but I'll find it. Keep going. Right, right, right. And what I'm, where I'm headed with this is, uh, Georgia uh, and Texas. Um, the, yep. So where I'm headed with this is we're seeing states really care about privacy, but not so much about risk quantification. Right now, is that going to flip? Because, uh, we have CCPA, we have stuff coming out of Vermont, we have 15 other states introducing privacy rate uh, legislation and regulation, right? But none of the states are really trying to quantify what their risk is in regards to the holding of data, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's great on one hand to have privacy, but if you don't put the two together, privacy and risk, you know, it's, it's almost a recipe for disaster with a, one, with a one-sided decision. That's a good point. Yep. That's interesting. I don't know. That's interesting. I, I think, you know, you've got you've got them saying to their constituents, hey, we want to take care of your privacy. <clears throat> but to the businesses, they're saying, hey, we want to make sure that you're doing things properly to take care of our constituents' privacy and also to stay in business. Because as we all know, us, as, especially in the small business world, a small business that has a cyber incident has a pretty darn good chance of going bye-bye mm-hmm. as a business. After a very short amount of time, maybe a year or two, which means so, the tax base goes bye bye. Yes, yes, yes. That's that's it. You know, with states putting all of this emphasis on small businesses, small and medium enterprises, and trying to do all these tax credits, you're you're completely right, Mac. That tax base goes poof. So let me ask you guys a question based on what you're saying here: Is there a belief that 
you know, for, for an organization, you know, forget, forget size or, or complexity or market or whatever, but for your typical organization, is there a perception that there's a, uh, a certain sort of minimal investment in security, you know, in terms of a dollar amount that needs to happen for you to be able to successfully conduct business in, in today's modern connected world. That is, you know, you have to have a firewall, you have to have this, you have to have that. These things cost money. Is it there's a there's a minimum spend that's sort of required regardless of the size of organization, or is it more appropriate to look at what's the appropriate spend on on security technologies or education or whatever you're going to do uh, as a percentage of you know revenue percentage of you know whatever budget whether it's the IT budget or however you slice it and dice it is it right. more appropriate to look at it as a percentage of your whatever or is there a minimal no if you're going to be in business, regardless of your size, you've got to invest this. You know, everything that glitters isn't always gold. Yeah, point. You know, that that statement right there, it it mm -hmm. really it really helps with what you're saying, right? What I'm why I said that is that it's not just money, right? Mm -hmm. When you're a small medium business, what you really should be looking for is not just the spend, but also what can you do with the risk, right? How are mm -hmm. you controlling and minimizing the impact, right? So if you're a small business, say, using AWS, right, you're interacting with their shared security model, right, where they're taking layer one and half of layer two, and then you're taking half of layer two through layer seven, right, of the OSI model as far as risk profile goes, right? You can't throw money at layer one and half of layer two because that's on AWS, right? Uh, if you're using a CRM, right, or uh, uh, some version of Salesforce that isn't as pricey for small businesses, right? Your client data is going to be sitting inside of that CRM, right? And they're the ones who are, sorry about that. They're the ones who are going to be accepting the risk, right? Uh, but, the implication in, but the implication in that, that is that there is a minimum spend. It's yes. just there, there's more, more or less a group policy or a group method for providers of security technologies, solutions, practices to, to sort of help give that to the smaller companies that can't afford it to do it on their own. Uh, uh, but, but, the, but the underlying implication is that there is a, an absolute minimal investment that needs to happen. In uh, terms, of yeah, it's hard though. I think this is a this this gets into a really interesting. I think vendors would love companies to have a certain percentage of money set aside for solutions because they all want to go tap into that money. Uh, sure. But what I think is really difficult is there is no standard formula across the board. To to uh, Scott, to your point. If, if I'm using AWS and I'm leveraging AWS services and I'm getting certain security capabilities from AWS, my spend on security may be very different than somebody running their own data center because they're going to have to do it all themselves. So yes. what yes. I don't want us to think about here is that there is a certain percent or a certain minimum dollar spend. I think that's very dangerous because sometimes it's embedded into your IT systems or the applications that you're using and it's gonna get consumed in that budget, not in a dedicated security budget, right? I do oh, believe absolutely. there is a minimum set of requirements that people should look at, 
protecting um, that they have control of. There are certain things they may not control. They may not control the underlying infrastructure, network, host, et cetera, if they're using cloud. But there are certain uh, things that I think organizations do have a level of control over that need to be looked at. And this is where I always go back to my app user data discussion. At the end of the day, I'm providing my users access to applications and data to transact business. It could be a consumer, it could be an employer, a combination of all of the above. It doesn't matter. I should be making investments to secure my users, my application, my data at a bare minimum. Now, how much I spend will depend. But I think there are certain requirements there. And then if I am running my own infrastructure, there are certain minimal requirements I should do there. But I don't think you can put a dollar value on it. Well, and if you're a small small to medium business, realistically, you should be starting with the CIS top 20 and the RMF controls, right? The RMF out of NIST, right? What that'll do is it'll give you a good bird dog on where you need to head to be able to put the appropriate systems in place, right? And then budget that out. Now, the problem with saying, well, a dollar first in the CSF. Yeah, the NIST CSF. Uh, the problem with the dollar first approach is that you may... You may budget $10,000 $10, for an entire year, right? I'm making up numbers. Uh, you may budget $10,000 in an entire year, have a breach that cripples your business, and that $10,000 spend is gone in one day, you know? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's no real way to quantify an absolute dollar value towards security risk uh, compliance and control sets. Plus, there's, there's open source solutions out there that could provide a level of security without a lot of spend. There's commercial versions. There's SMB solutions. I mean, the, the problem is there, there's such a wide-ranging uh, dollar value associated to different controls that, that you could implement in the environment. You could use a ton of open source tools and get to a level of security requirements without spending a whole lot of actual dollars. Now, you might have to spend it in some people to implement it and make it all work, but to to say, well, you need to spend X on a firewall and Y on a SIM and blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think that's the way you go. So question, Matt, and this is my poor attempt at a segue. You posted an article talking about uh, enterprise risk in 2020. Are we ready for security 4.0? So yeah. how does everything that you just said translate or not into this future state of security 4.0. So let's define security 4.0 for a second, the way it's kind of written in here, because it's interesting. Okay. We actually just did a survey on on aspects of this and, and just did a webcast. So mm -hmm. when they talk about uh, security 4.0, it's this trend towards automation and digitization of processes that have traditionally been done by humans. So what they're saying is, are our enterprise risk frameworks ready for this concept of orchestration, automation, response, et cetera? I would. Well, my, go ahead. my stupid first question is: Wasn't that the the motivation from security one to two and two to three, as well as three to four? Exactly. <laughs> hasn't yeah. hasn't it always been about automating the manual process? Yeah, but let, let's understand where we are from an automation perspective. Okay. Less than twenty five percent of our security processes, based on the survey results, are being automated today. We are a long way from this concept of automation. And so the reason I brought this article in here was to highlight, look, most organizations are still doing security one dot, two dot, maybe even 
3DOT, but there are very few organizations that are at a security 4.0 layer where they are automating a lot of these activities. Our, our survey mm -hmm. results specifically show we are not doing as much and we're not as mature as we think we are in this concept of automation. And so my base question is, do we really need to change our enterprise risk management framework to account for something that not a lot of people are doing? To me, it's more about are we doing fundamental risk management uh, uh, capabilities to that align to what we're actually doing from a security perspective, and and I think worrying about security 4.0, I I still think we're we're two three maybe even four years away from even getting enough critical mass to even worry about this. I disagree. Right. Go ahead, Josh. I disagree because I think that automation is very front of mind. And it's very exciting and interesting topic, and it's fascinating to people, but they're not for, seeing these breakthroughs in automation. Sorry, for some people. For some people. Uh, for okay, for some people, but the, the, what we're not seeing is breakthroughs in automation that you're talking about. My God, we're not seeing you know massive amounts of automating of IDS reports or whatever. I don't know. I'm picking stuff out. And the point is, is that we're not seeing the breakthroughs. But what we're missing in this discussion is the little things. And what I mean by that is. We're seeing the, the, the seams, the security incident event management systems automating more and more, but a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. Mm -hmm. It's not exciting. It's not newsworthy. It's not revolutionary, but it is automation. And the automation is creeping in under the, under the curtain, if you will, rather than, you know, flinging it open going, I'm here. So it's, it's a lot of small pieces that are happening and that automation is occurring, but it's occurring in ways that are not as, as sort of blatant, if that makes sense. And they're also happening think. in very specific use cases. Uh, based on the survey results, the top three things that people are doing uh, a good level of automation around is phishing. We still have an email phishing problem. It is one of the main attack vectors in the environment. Yep. People are doing more to try to automate aspects of phishing because it is just overwhelming for most organizations. <clears throat> Uh, we're seeing it with brute force login attempts, and we're seeing it at malware. So there are use cases, Josh, that definitely have more maturity uh, when it comes to automation. And, and the survey results found that, right? A lot of people would say phishing and malware are number one and two. Our survey results said one and three. Brute force login uh, was kind of in, inserted there in number two. Um, that's great. But there's a lot of other use cases that have very little... Uh, if any level of automation to them today. Uh, and this is going to take time for these things to, to continue to move forward. And that's my point is we're talking about an enterprise risk management framework to account for a security structure that is two, three, four years away. Um, and, and my bigger question is, are we doing enough with just basic risk management principles to account for what we're actually doing today? You oh, know, no, no, I, I totally agree with you on that point. That last point is, are we doing enough? And are we performing a, a basic level of risk management? And the answer is, oh, hell no, and oh, hell no, on the on the majority, vast majority of companies out there. The oh, hell no part of this is, is monstrous. But uh, uh, I think that the big problem to seeing the automation happen, and by the way, I love your timetable, two, three, four, five years. It's still a very, very near future. I agree with you. Um, the, the big problem with the timetable on why aren't we automating more is the de-siloing. Uh, e even the three things that you mentioned are point solutions, point problems, point solutions. Mm -hmm. Those are being automated in their little silos. But when we start de-siloing de the data, that's when we'll see the automation become 
monstrously widespread. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, look at the. I, bet, look I think the we're other, on the same page. Look at the other side of the coin, though. You know, it, it, in in the article, it says, and I'm going to read it verbatim. Consider the impl- the implications of hackers taking over automated gates, security robots, access control systems, or even inserting deep fake videos into uh, video management systems. You know, it, we can say we've automated everything under the sun, right? Personally, I would totally tell you that you're you're wrong. Uh, but if somebody doesn't control the access gates to the automation systems, hackers are going to run amok in it. it. It's just, it's a thing. It's going to happen, you know? And then from there, once hackers breach and get in, what happens to your risk profile to the rest of the business? How much does that put in jeopardy? Everything that you're trying to do, your bottom dollar, plus your clients and your vendors that support everything that you call a business. So, so it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I, I'm agreeing with all with all of you and disagreeing with all of you, and that's why I love you guys. Um, to segue <laughs> one more time, because we are running short on time, uh, there was an article that I think sort of relates to what we're talking about. Uh, my story number five, five cyber program elements that financial services firms must cover to stay compliant. So I think this addresses to some degree, you know, the security 4.0 moving, moving forward, all the technological, technological changes that are happening. Um, if you scroll through the article and you get down to what are the actual five things that they're suggesting, surprise, surprise, number one is documentation. Two is to uh, protect private data. Three is better third-party vendor due diligence. Four is risk assessments. And five is education and training. I will submit to you that this article, at least, is suggesting very manual processes as being required to maintain compliance, shall we substitute security, as we move forward, perhaps, into the security 4.0. Again, All that very, to say is... Very foundational. Yeah, I mean, these are very foundational components. And, and look, people aren't even doing these five fundamental things in some organizations right well we've seen so, a drop so off to, on so to clarify i think we would all agree that as much as we concede i'll concede that automation is necessary to survive moving forward never 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 does any amount of automation uh take the place of the necessary uh, manual, fundamental steps that any organization must follow to do this thing that we call security. Agree? Yes? yes. Everybody's everybody's I, I with agree. it. I nod. We nod. I mean, so while there while the automation is necessary, I think there's too many, and maybe this is one of the goals of this program, is there's too many organizations out there that think automation will make it so they don't have to think about security. And I, I think I will I will shout out at least as, as one longtime consultant, no, you've got to think about security. There's things that you have to do before you go off spending and automating and doing all these things that the the vendors and the analysts tell you to do. Yeah, everybody's so chasing so- that, that shiny thing at the end of automated processes, 
but yet I don't have the basic processes down for me to even be in a position to automate. And, and so now we're thinking about risk frameworks that are going after this big shiny thing and we, have, we still haven't done some of this fundamental basic stuff. So right. what you're saying is take a compliance first approach rather than trying to boil the uh, boil the ocean. You know, take a look at your per systems and see where they fall within this and take a look at your people, your business structures, right? Can, can I rephrase that slightly? Take a risk yeah. management approach first to identify <laughs> the compliance and the nice. security aspects of it because that to me is the starting point which is why um, I, I brought up that article, which is I still don't think we're doing a basic risk management first approach to this right. environment. Therefore, we're we're just we're chasing objects off in the future and not doing the basics now. Which which is ironic because and sort of tying this back to our first uh, segment on PCI, PCI data security standard requires an annual risk assessment. Most people don't know what that means and don't know what that in, entails. So it's, it's sort of a part before that, the no, worst I thing. Have to, I have to stop you. Does, does that mean that all four levels are responsible for an annual risk assessment? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. On, on paper, all four levels are responsible for the DSS in its entirety. Smaller merchants that have very specific payment acceptance methods only get validated against the particular requirements that that people think are the most you know somebody decided that wrote the saqs these are the ones that apply the most but ironically uh you know pci sort of encapsulates everything the pci ecosystem encapsulates everything that we've been talking about the fundamentals aren't practiced everybody's rushing for some automated i don't want to think about it let somebody else worry about its solution which is why i, I, I think uh, scott at the very beginning you said there's, there's all these companies out there that say that they don't have to do pci because somebody else is doing it for them mm -hmm. and, yep. and and that's 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 the that's the other the the flip side of the the silver bullet this holy grail that everybody's looking for I don't want to have to think about security. It's not in my wheelhouse. Just tell me what I need to buy. What color does the blinky light need to be? And how often do I need to look at the blinky light? Yeah, and you know, don't don't lose sight of the basics. You know, automation. When you're talking about whether it's through scripting, through machine learning, which really is just a bunch of if-then statements, or uh, uh, AI, oh. right? I had to say it. I'm sorry. I had to say it. <laughs> the hate it. mail is just going to go through the roof. Okay. You know. They're, technically, they're if-then-else statements. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Nested oh, if-then-else statements. get us in such trouble. <laughs> oh. Instead of focusing on what's Cheers. shiny new. Instead of focusing on what's shiny and new, stick to the basics. It'll get you a lot further. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's a, a good note to end this session on. Gentlemen, thank you very much. That wraps up Episode 7, Security and Compliance Weekly. Stay cool, stay compliant, stay secure, and let's keep building those bridges.